What's up everybody, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and these are five highlights from 2023. Number five, we release a critical and important curriculum for parents to talk to their teens about gender and sexuality in partnership with Access. This curriculum has reached thousands of parents across the country and helped them have better conversations with their teens about gender and sexuality. Number four, we released a mini doc telling my story and the G3 Project story earlier this year and it's reached thousands of people across the globe. Number three, Courageous Conversations 2023 was an amazing success, our best year yet. Um, this year, we focus on how to reconstruct after deconstructing your faith. And we have so many testimonies of countless people that have been blessed by Courageous Conversations in person and virtually and continue to be blessed through our on-demand option. Number two, as you know, we released our Juneteenth documentary last year, but this year it got picked up by PBS and was available in millions of homes across the country on Juneteenth of this year. That is so amazing, God is so good. And number one, I am so excited that our Unspoken documentary was picked up by Tubi this year, so it's available free to anyone who wants to watch it and reaches our target audience of skeptics who are struggling with this idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. And that's not all. This month, it was picked up by Fox Soul and aired on national television for the first time, available in millions of homes across the world. We could not do what we do at the Jew3 Project without you. We have so much lined up next year. I have a book coming out next year that I'm excited to tell y'all about, When Faith Disappoints. Uh, the gap between what we believe and what we experience. And there's so much more that we have lined up for 2024. The amazing thing about 2024 is our 10 year anniversary. Jude 3 turns 10, 2024. And so we want to encourage you to stay tuned to all of our socials, subscribe to our newsletter for the exciting things we have coming up in 2024. Thank you for helping us reach these milestones this year. And if you want to continue to help the mission and vision of the Jew3 Project and help us finish this year strong, or if you see this in the new year, um, to help us continue the work we do for the Jew3 Project, you can give online at jew3project.org backslash donate. You have the option to give online or there's an address to mail your check in person. Every gift you give helps equip. We could not do what we do without you. So thank you. We appreciate you and more to come. Grace and peace and God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project, and I'm so excited for another episode. You see, today I have on my hoodie, Listen, Lament, Legislate Hoodie for uh, G3 Project's winter collection of Listen, Lament, Legislate. So that is available at G3Project.org. Uh, but without further ado, uh, I want to welcome our guest for today for the G3 Project podcast, Dr. Nijay Gupta. Thanks, Lisa. So nice to meet you. <laughs> Tell our audience just a little bit about who you are. Yeah, well, I teach New Testament at Northern Seminary. It's in Chicago. I live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and um, I do the normal teaching thing, but I also love to podcast. Um, I have a podcast called Slow Theology, where we talk about 
the messiness of life in the church uh, and we're following Jesus. And um, my wife, Amy, uh, is in ministry. She's also a marriage therapist. I have three beautiful kids. And um, and I do some writing whenever I get a chance. Awesome. Well, you have an interesting story because uh, before you became a Christian, you were Hindu. Is that correct? Yeah, my parents came uh, to the United States in the early 70s. I was born in the late 70s and my parents are Hindu. Um, and I became a Christian in high school through my brother. Uh, there's actually a story about my, um, my coming to faith on YouTube. If you Google my name, you'll find it. So, um, yeah, I was on fire for the Lord and, um, fire's still going. Awesome. For our audience who are, is is not familiar with Hinduism, can you just give us a brief overview of kind of the general beliefs of, of Hinduism and how they differ from Christianity? Sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't speak for Hindus. Let me, let me say that. I, I will say, um, you know, most Indians that you meet will have, um, you know, a Hindu heritage a Hindu culture. Um, my parents, um, you know, always taught, uh, peace, uh, is a big part of Hinduism, uh, acceptance, things like that. They have their own gods, um, their own deities that they, uh, honor and revere, uh, and um, I think what really drew me to Christianity is the idea to know God personally, because I had heard things about Hinduism growing up from my parents. I'd been to ceremonies. I visited temples. But the idea of a God who comes in the flesh to know what it's like to be us and to die for us, to go kind of to the furthest extent, was something that I'd never encountered before. And so that really drew me to Jesus. And to have um, the man at a cross that walks with us and talks with us uh, is a really special thing. So, um, yeah, that's what really, really drew me to the faith. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Well, you you've written a book um, on highlighting the women in Scripture that we often um, overlook. Yeah. Um, what was the motivation for that book? Great question, Lisa. Um, I actually, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but when I started seminary about 20 some years ago, I actually did not think that women should be pastors. I had grown up in a conservative evangelical environment and I, I wasn't like mean to women or anything, but I just felt like there were these lines that the Bible has drawn about what women can and can't do. And then when I went to seminary, I started to engage with different uh, denominations where I started to meet for the first time women pastors and women in ministry. And it brought down and it questioned a lot of my assumptions about women and their motivations. And it actually forced me to read the Bible more in depth to understand what it says about men and women. And so I did like a two year deep dive into not only what the Bible says about men and women, but also scholarship. And I was surprised to find that, um, the arguments saying that women shouldn't be in ministry are not as strong as we think they are. The idea that Adam was created first uh, doesn't necessarily mean that in some way he has a leg up on the human race. For example, God often chooses the second or the last. David was the last in his family and he was chosen as king. And so birth order isn't necessarily indicative. Uh, yes, you have 12 male disciples, but you have all these women that are doing really important things in the gospels like Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joanna, Susanna, 
Um, and so you have these great women uh, of faith that are there as well. And then the male disciples don't actually turn out to be models of virtue and leadership, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So I went through a kind of change of mind in seminary, I ended up marrying a seminary student uh, who was doing a master of divinity, my wife, Amy, who's an amazing leader. But why did it take me 19 years or, you know, 18 years after that to write a book on it? A big uh, catalyst for that was um, there was a public conversation in the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention, about abuse going on in the Southern Baptist Church. And there was a leader named John MacArthur, who's uh, kind of a popular Christian teacher, who had basically told Beth Moore, go home. Beth Moore, another popular Christian teacher. And I've long admired Beth Moore. And it really got me thinking. Um, where are the women in the Bible? Are they home? And some of the women are home. But Junia, for example, is a Christian leader who's in prison for representing the gospel. You have women like Phoebe who are delivering Paul's important letter to the Romans, traveling from Cancria to Rome. You have women like Deborah in the Old Testament, who is, for all intents and purposes, Israel's sole leader. And she's a judge and a prophet, and she goes actually into war. She doesn't fight, but she goes into war with Israel's warriors. So I noticed that there is a mismatch between some of our assumptions today about where women should be or can be and how God can use them. And it's actually in the Bible where God is empowering and uh, putting his, his hand on and sending out women to do ministry in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned Phoebe. Um, I hadn't thought much about Phoebe until I went to seminary. Yeah. And I remember my New Testament professor talking about Phoebe um, delivering the letter to um, the Church of Rome and saying she would have had to explain the parts in the letters yeah. that um, right. that the people um, didn't understand. She would have to basically interpret scripture for for them and tell them what Paul was saying um, in parts they didn't understand. And so what he was doing was making an argument, like, see, this is a woman actually mm-hmm. preaching what is a, a, a one of the most popular uh, books yep. of the Bible. The first person that would be communicating that would be a woman um, to the church um, at Rome. So that yeah, was a very... You got it right, Lisa. We miss a lot of these things because we didn't understand some of the cultural dynamics of the time. Because, mm-hmm. like, even today, I don't have to send a letter very often. Like, I had to write a check and send it to somebody. And I, I didn't know if we had checks. I don't know if we have stamps or envelopes. Like, maybe once a year do I send a letter. But the ancient world, if you wanted to send a letter, it was actually really challenging because you had to find someone who was literate. You had to acquire the right materials to send a letter. And then the, the traditional ancient letter, the average ancient letter, let's put it that way, was about half a page. Paul writes 16 chapters. This is a really long, important theological document. So he's not just going to send it with anybody. He's going to send it with a trusted colleague. And the way Paul writes Romans 16, people just, they usually don't get to Romans 16 when they're reading Romans. They get lost in 9 through 11. They might make it to 15, but then the 16 just feels like end credits in a movie. But it's actually a goldmine of information because we have a number of women mentioned in Romans 16, Trifuna, Trifosis, 
Mary of Rome, Persis, uh, the mother of Rufus, the sister of Nereus, uh, Junia, and so forth. But Phoebe, the way that that Romans 16 is introduced, it's, it's clear to historians that she is the one delivering the letter. So it's Paul's commendation, hey, this is who this person is. And he uses the most commendatory language to say, trust her. When he says Sister Phoebe, he doesn't mean she's a Christian. They would have already taken that for granted because she's a deacon and she's a patron of Christians. What he's saying is, I can't come and she's someone like me, right? He does this with Timothy, who's his assistant. She says, he says, the Thessalonians, uh, you've welcomed Timothy, our brother. Or to the Philippians, I'm sending Timothy, our brother. My brother, he doesn't mean they're a Christian. They would have known that. It, it means this is someone like me. This is someone who uh, I'm sending as my agent. So I actually use the language of proxy for Phoebe. So imagine in that time to send a woman on behalf of Paul, just like you were saying, she's going to be there for a while, maybe months. So she's going to end up negotiating what Paul wants the church to do. And if they're mad, because Paul says, I'm writing boldly to you, meaning he's going to tell them some hard news about how they should behave. They're going to blame the messenger, right? And then she's going back to Corinth. So certainly people are going to pull her aside and say, you tell Paul this, right? So for all intents and purposes, she is like Paul. She's not an apostle exactly like Paul, but she is like Paul to them. And so she has quite a bit of weight on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. No, that's super helpful. And for those who are listening, like, I just can't get uh, with women pastors. I don't, I don't think that's what we're arguing for in this conversation. We're just trying to highlight the ways in which women are used as leaders throughout mm -hmm. scripture. Uh, and I think that's really important to note. Um, because I, I I posted this um, some time ago about like the first people to preach the message that Jesus has written, the resurrection, which is the gospel message, the good news, are women. Yeah. They're yeah. taking the message to men. And I thought it was such a, for me, I think that message is so important today um, because we see when people think about women, they automatically go to Eve and say Eve was the one who kind of got Adam to right. take, uh, eat the fruit. Uh, but if we think about it, Jesus provides this flip that just as the fruit went to Adam, Jesus flips it and takes the gospel message, uses the woman to yeah. take the gospel message to the to men. And so even if you were to blame Eve, then you have to look at the way women actually come in a redemptive way um, mm -hmm. with the gospel message. And so I love how Jesus is constantly turning these ideologies on their heads um, in the way he handles women. What other women? Uh, you mentioned Junia. Yeah. Um, that's one that is controversial for many reasons because she is um, known as an apostle by some. And then some try to say she was not a, a woman at all. Um, so right. can you talk a little bit about the controversy around Junia? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, those listening, watching, if you turn to Romans chapter 16, verse seven, uh, Paul's committing a number of women, but he includes this couple, this uh, male, female couple and is the man, Junia is the woman. But if you read some translations from the 1970s or earlier, 
some of the translations will say instead of junia, it'll say junias with an N at the end. Now, most readers won't know this, but if it has an S, that means the translator thinks that person's a man. And if it's junia with just an A at the end, then the translator thinks that person's a woman. If we go back to the Greek text, because Paul wrote in Greek to the Romans, uh, just based on what the name looks like in Greek in that particular instance, it's not clear whether it's a man or a woman. But Junia was a common name for a woman at the time. And Junias, we have no record of that being a man's name. And so that, then it raises the question, why does anyone think this is a man? Well, I think that people have thought throughout history that this is a man because Paul says that this couple is noteworthy among the apostles. Now that can be taken in two ways. It could be taken as they're noteworthy as apostles or they're noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Now, what do we do then if just looking at the Greek text doesn't tell you? Well, number one, we have the name Junia, which is a common name. Junias is not a name at all for that time. But one thing that scholars do is we look at what we call early reception history. Do we have Christians in the second, third, fourth, fifth century that talk about these people and can tell us who they think they are? And I'll tell you what, almost universally, and we have lots of information from this time period, almost universally, they take for granted that Andronicus's partner, number one, is a woman. Number two is an apostle. Now, it's not an apostle in a sense necessarily that Paul is an apostle. But I think there would have been an apostolic school or community. So, for example, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70. And the language of sending out is apostello, sending out as apostles. So we know that there were more than 12 people that traveled with Jesus, were sent out by Jesus. Now, a couple interesting things that Paul says about this couple. He says they were Jewish, which is helpful, because uh, as the church went on and on and on, a smaller percentage of the church was Jewish, while Gentiles came to faith. And he said that they were uh, earlier in the faith than him. They were in Christ before him, meaning Paul was converted very early on. They were converted even beforehand. So some scholars, including myself, think that they may have actually been followers of Jesus' earthly ministry. So what, what I think about who Paul looked up to, because he had some beef sometimes with the apostles. When I think about who he looked up to, I think these are prime candidates for what I call his auntie and uncle. <laughs> In Indian culture, we call our mentors auntie and uncle. So I think of who Paul's auntie and uncle were. This could be it. Last thing I'll say about them, which is really interesting, is he says they were imprisoned for the gospel. He uses the Greek word, meaning fellow prisoners of war. Now, they weren't technically prisoners of war, but they were almost certainly in prison for the sake of the gospel. And there was no greater privilege. And I'll tell you what, Lisa, it's extremely rare for women to go to prison at that time. You had to be seen as a threat to the Roman order. It's not like you stole a loaf of bread or you were jaywalking, if you, if you committed a petty crime, they would either beat you or fine you or send you home to be punished by your family. Only serious crimes would send someone to prison. And men and women weren't separated in prison. 
So Junia doing public ministry meant she's taking her life into her hands, especially as a woman. Because you could be assaulted by guards, you could be assaulted by other prisoners. And Paul commended her to the point where she got out of prison and still went back into ministry. So she was certainly a hero of the early church. Yeah, no, that is, I think, incredibly insightful. Um, I think about when uh, the law um, was, uh, when they found the law, it's it's funny because they always say they found it like, I believe in the time of Josiah, the great reformer. And they're like, we found the law, but it was actually where it was supposed to be, the irony. Yeah. <laughs> How do you find something where it's actually supposed to be? It's supposed to be in the temple. Um, but and they call a prophetess to right. interpret um for them. Uh they want they want to hear from the Lord. They want to know what should they do, and they call a woman. And right. there's plenty of men that are prophets in yeah. that time, but they call a woman to give direction to Israel, to be the mouthpiece of God. And I think we we often miss those passages that are very empowering for women. Now, there are some passages in the the Old Testament that are very um, sometimes hard to navigate hearing Mm -hmm. from as a woman hearing them. Um, But also hearing these passages, I think, are very, very affirming. Yeah, you mentioned Huldah, but I would also, in my book, I talk about Deborah. I had to be really selective because I wanted to focus on the New Testament, but I had a whole chapter on Deborah because she is a prophet. Um, she's married, but we don't hear anything about her husband, Lapidoth. He's not a leader. He's not really in the picture. And um, what people don't often understand when they're reading Judges is this is one of the darkest eras of Israel's history. Um, the, the narrator says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And there was not yet a king in Israel, meaning it was kind of anarchy. It was kind of chaos, right? Um, and so well, the only thing Israel had at the time were prophets and judges. And judges would have been seen as kind of temporary institutional leaders, um, and the whole goal was to get them out of hot water and to free them from their enemies and to please God and to institute a period of peace. And Deva does that. There are no other leaders at the time that, that have a higher status than her. And it specifically says she adjudicates uh, disputes within Israel, which is similar to what Moses did in the book of Exodus and similar to what Samuel does later on in Israel's history. And so for all intents and purposes, she is the singular leader of Israel. And there's a victory song sung about her. So we know exactly what God thinks of her. Um, and basically that God had a divine victory in partnership with Deborah and her uh, military leader, Barak. And it's a beautiful story. It's one of the only stories in the Old Testament of a woman being a kind of solo leader of Israel. Mm-hmm. No, that's extremely helpful. And I think it, it is important, especially not only for women to hear these things, but for men to, to hear mm-hmm. these things. Um, I always, it's always interesting to me. I have, uh, when I graduated from undergrad, I went in the corporate space. And so, you know, in the corporate space, there's a lot of women managers, VPs, 
president CEOs. And so I would I would often think like sometimes when I hear um, people in ministry talk about men and women and interaction, I'm like, wow, they're talking from such a privileged position well, because they're in the protection of ministry world. Yeah. And I'm like, you're talking to an audience of people who work in the I, real, I don't want to say real world because that's, yeah. I think that <laughs> in the marketplace and they don't have um, the liberty to have such these strict guidelines because they, mm-hmm. their bosses might be a woman. They might have to go on trips with women yeah. for a, a, a business trip. And if they buck up against it, then they're going to get sent to HR for a diversity training. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it's just like, wow, this is very interesting the way kind of we we think about women and men in a Christian box versus how many people in the marketplace have to navigate uh, with ease. So if we if we don't think through that critically, then we're not preparing people to do um life in the marketplace. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think it is helpful for men to hear this, to reorient kind of how they think through uh, communicating this to their congregation who may not have the protection of ministry to uh, create kind of these boundaries for themselves, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not saying go crazy, but I'm just saying think about how you're communicating in light of the marketplace and how people have to actually interact every day. Yeah. Beautifully said. I mean, it's, it, you know, I've heard, I've heard that the church and the Academy are two of the slowest places to change. Not all change is good, but we have to admit that um, in the United States, um, you know, we have done harm to women, in, you know, not always in every place, but we've done harm to women in terms of uh, treating women fairly, uh, giving women opportunities, uh, that sort of thing. But then there are other spaces that have progressed faster, like the business world to some degree. And I, I think about the entertainment industry. Women experienced uh, uh, social capital in the, in the entertainment industry far faster than they did in the business world or the academy or in the church. Again, not all change is what God wants, but my, my book really is about what's in the Bible and what we can learn from the great heroes of faith and from these inspired biblical writers that say, hey, listen, sometimes we need to break away from our stereotypes and see how God is using uh, someone you wouldn't expect to further the kingdom. And um, one thing that scripture repeats is humans tend to look at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the inside. And we see that modeled in how Jesus behaved and who Jesus looked at, who Jesus talked to. I just think, Lisa, about the conversation that Jesus had and how it shocked the disciples when he's talking to the woman at the well. And he's having this deeply theological conversation, right? He comes for a glass of water. He never gets his glass of water because they, they get caught up in this really beautiful conversation about, about the future, about what God's going to do. Same thing with the conversation with the Syrophoenician woman. It's this kind of battle of the wits. There's a, Jesus being a little bit uh, abrasive, but, but she doesn't walk away. She, 
she's in the conversation. It's kind of a test of which. So she's, you know, he's like, but this, and then she says, yeah, but that. It's kind of like she's playing along with his trickiness. And it takes some cleverness to do that. And so the Bible should surprise us in kind of taking twists and turns that include a cast of characters that we not, might not always expect. And that's supposed to teach us about who God wants to use. Yes. Um, when you get to the household um, codes, uh, it is, for many women, it is very difficult to mm. navigate because it, it seems like, okay, we're only supposed to talk to uh, young people and other women right. as far as communicating about the truth of God's word. Um, how how sh- how should women and men be thinking about those passages? Because it seems as sometimes it's communicated that, you know, a woman can't think on her own without right. <laughs> uh, uh, um, a man kind of explaining scripture to her. Um, that's an that's an extreme view. Yeah. So that I want to, I don't want to make it seem like that's the majority view. That is an extreme view. But how should we be, we be thinking about those things? From your Great question. So for those listeners that don't know, the household codes, these texts in Colossians, Ephesians, First Peter, and elsewhere, where yeah. the writer says something like, "Women be submissive, slaves obey. Um, you know, parents be nice to your children, but children should obey." That sort of thing. And it feels kind of rigid and it feels like putting people in a box. And um, where, where I want to start is, you know, when I wrote, tell her story, what I didn't want to do is just talk about all of the problem passages that say women don't do this or women should be in this box. That's been done before. There's been lots of books written about that. I wanted to say, on the one hand, we have these texts that say women submit. And on the other hand, we have all these places in the New Testament where women are often single, um, out there doing ministry, you know, what I call shoulder to shoulder with men. And so what is going on there when you have these independent women of Romans eight that are traveling with Jesus without their husbands, they're paying for Jesus ministry. They're whipping out their chase Sapphire card. Anytime he's making a cheap take factory, there's a, you know, what's happening there? And then you have these texts that say women submit. Um, it's important to know, Lisa, that the household codes don't go, don't derive from the Old Testament. They don't derive from the teaching of Jesus. They actually derive from Roman political philosophy. They actually come from Aristotle. Aristotle had this idea that society should be built on the household, and the household should have this three three relationship framework, husband and wife, parents and children, slaves and masters. And when we read these New Testament texts, they're actually building on Roman political philosophy. Now, I think they're trying to Christianize it, but what I think people like Paul and Peter are doing is because they just assumed Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Why wouldn't they, right? They weren't in the business of changing laws and changing the structure of society. They were in the business of infusing the current structures with the DNA of the kingdom of God. 
right? And so there was, you know, I know we don't like it when we read it, but Paul doesn't say slaves go free. He doesn't advocate for abolition, right? Uh, in the same way, they had a patriarchal system. Legally, men were in charge. You couldn't just create a household where all of a sudden women were in charge if there was a male adult. So you had the system, and instead of just saying, hey, let's just make it up into something different, they, I, I assume they just, that never occurred to them. Uh, they said, um, let's, let's bring the grace of the gospel into these relationships. Let's bring the benevolence of the gospel into relationships. So they're trying to infuse it. But if we just put a pin on that and we jump over to Philemon. Philemon is a Christian slave owner. He has a slave named Onesimus who becomes a Christian. He's visiting Paul or he's with Paul. And Onesimus and Philemon have some falling out. We don't know what happened. And Paul wants them to reconcile. So he sends Onesimus back home. Now, in a normal situation in the Roman world, a master would just beat the living daylights out of their slave. This was extremely common. Remember, they would send their household slave to a plantation or a farm where they'd never be seen again. Uh, or they would demote them in some way, right? They were treated like property. And here Paul says, welcome him back, not just as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So he started to destabilize the categories that we put people in. He's saying, he's your slave, but don't treat him as a slave. Treat him as your beloved brother. And above and beyond that, he says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now, Paul is like a VIP in Christian circles, right? He talks about the first Thessalonians. We have this weightiness of the apostles. He talks about first Corinthians 9. And what would you do if Paul came to visit, right? You would put out the nice uh, dishes. You would, you know, cook up some, you know, some salmon, you know, cedar plank salmon. You would, you know, you tidy up the house. You know, you do all the stuff. And part of saying, do all that stuff for this slave, Onesimus. That, so then how do you reconcile that with the household codes? I think what's going on here is these are two worlds colliding, the Roman world and the emerging kingdom of God. And they're trying to find ways to make this work. But Lisa, what I would say to the church today is we came to a realization over time that slavery was wrong. Now, when the abolition movements happened in the United States and the UK, Preachers were saying, theologians were saying, slavery is written into the Bible. It's actually there. I can point to texts and say, slaves are meant to be good slaves. Slaves shouldn't revolt, they shouldn't run away, and they shouldn't advocate for freedom. But what the Christians who won did was they talked about the equality and essential dignity of every human being, and that the gospel overturns power structure in society and says every person made in the image of God still with the spirit and even not, you know, not Christians are equal before God. And so what I would say is 
even though these texts are in scripture, not all of them carry the same level of weight of normativity for the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean I'm throwing out my Bible. That doesn't mean I don't believe every word of scripture is true. I believe every word of scripture is true, but how we apply scripture changes. For example, I'm okay with women braiding their hair. <laughs> even though the Bible forbids it. I'm okay with tattoos. I don't have a tattoo. I'm okay with tattoos, even though the Bible forbids it. Paul says to Timothy, if you get a stomachache, drink wine and not water. I don't think that's good medical advice. I don't think Christians have to obey that. I think it's okay to drink water. So when it comes to household codes, what I think we can learn from the household codes is work together, submit to Christ, aim for harmony, right? Try to be respectable to the culture around you as much as you can without compromising your Christian beliefs. I think those are the, some of the key takeaways from the household codes. Yeah, that's a that's a I think a very helpful perspective and different than I know that when we talk to talk about slavery, I think we've kind of wrapped our mind around that what you're saying beautifully because it's like okay, we understand that Paul was not in a democracy. Um <laughs> he yeah. didn't have a this view that Jesus was coming, you know, 2000, 3000 years later, he thought it was going to be within his lifetime. And so that really shifts how you advocate when you think there's a, a divine alleviation uh from for for your problems. Yeah. Like God is going to come and take care of this in a few years or 10 20 years. Really? You 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 don't think you have to push as much because the God is going to come and make the things right. Um I think it's it's harder. I I think I don't want people to hear you saying that you don't think uh, men are good leaders or sure. uh, yeah. wives, women. There is not a certain sometimes order in the household um, in certain in certain regards. But I think you're just challenging uh, kind of how we how we view it in light of how we kind of can change and shift our view of understanding slavery in the Bible. Am I correct in that? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I think uh, my book teller story can be meaningful to people across the spectrum of views on the relationship between men and women. What I often tell people in more traditional settings is uh, the change I want to see is like, are we listening to women? Um, are we understanding the lives of women? Like, if you're a preacher and every illustration is a, a war illustration, and I've heard preachers like that where every illustration is a football illustration. And I've heard preachers like that. Um, maybe listen, listen to people in congregation, you know, who come from different, who have different life experiences, just like Jesus will preach a parable about a woman. Uh, Jesus, and, and another thing I'll say is be careful with stereotypes. I was just having a conversation with a friend about this earlier this morning, that, you know, with the parable of the, of the coin, uh, the lost coin, it's a story about a woman, but the only thing we know about this woman is she has money and she knows how to throw a party. That's it. You know, we don't hear about her husband. We don't hear about her children. We don't hear about her job. All we know is she has money. The whole point of the parable is she's looking for her money. Um, so be really careful of stereotypes because we don't want to put men or women into a box because God doesn't put them into a box. So, yeah, I think my book can be appreciated. And some of the reviews have said that where, Hey, I'm in this kind of space and this kind of space, what I've learned. 
is just um, how we talk about each other, how we talk to each other, and the importance of listening to each other. Yeah, that's it. I think extremely important. Um, is there anything about women that we haven't discussed that you think would be important, especially in relationship your book that you want our audience to take take away? Yeah, I have two daughters, and um, you know, who are in the church with me, and they're in youth group and all of that. And I'll just say, like, one reason I wrote the book is it's really important that people see heroes who look and are like them, right? And so what I really wanted to do is just shine a spotlight on women heroes of the faith. And um, I think it's just so important because the last thing I ever want is for uh, a woman in the church to say, I wish I were a man. Because then I would be important, or then I could X, Y, and Z. Um, no, we want every woman to say, um, I want to be another so-and-so like, and doesn't this happen with, you know, in sports or in music or in theater where you say, I was so inspired by, you know, so-and-so doing such and such. They're just like me. They look like me. They talk like me. Their hair is like my hair or they come from a similar city as me, that sort of thing. And so uh, if you're listening, um, so I encourage you, check out the book. If you just want to expand your horizon of who you understand the people of God to be. Uh, real quick, there, I did this thing when I was in seminary where our dean, uh, she did this exercise with all incoming students where there's a couple hundred of us, we were, maybe 150 of us, we were in chapel. She said, close your eyes. She said, imagine the average Christian today. Close your eyes, imagine that person. So we did. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess with, with your imagination by telling you statistically what the average Christian is. She said, hold that image in your head. She said, the average Christian today is African, uh, is, is in the global south. So, okay, wow. And then she said, the average Christian is a woman, and the average Christian is Pentecostal. <laughs> and, and that just messes with your mind. It's just like, wow, I'm imagining some, you know, a, a, the opposite of that, basically. Uh, specifically in America. Uh, and, and so my book, I want to disorient people on what their assumptions about the Bible. What I really want them to do is go back to the Bible and say, is that story really there? How did I never, you know, this is one of the big things that people tell me when they read my book. Why did I never hear, hear about Damaris? Why have I never heard a sermon about uh, Deborah? Why have I never heard a sermon about Mary's song of praise? And I want to say, once you discover these things, like, Share them with others because they're really important. Yes. Thank you so much. Tell people how they could get your book. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could order it through the publisher, University Press. Uh, I used to work at ChristianBook.com, formerly CBD. So that that's a place you can find good discounts. If you want to try to get it on Kindle or something like that, definitely check it out on Amazon. And repeat the title of your book for our listeners again. Yeah. Tell her story. Uh how women led, taught, and ministered to the early church. Forgot the stem <laughs> fell in there for a second. How women led, taught, and ministered in the early church. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Gupta. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you all for watching another episode of the G3 Project podcast, where we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Remember, uh, to help support the mission and vision of the G3 Project, you can give online at g3project.org. You can hit the donate tab. Uh, or there's, if you hit donate and hit donate by mail, they'll give you the address to send your gift in that way. Um, until next time, uh, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew three project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.